Greetings, everyone. Welcome to Satiate, the Boulder Nutrition Podcast. I'm Sue Van Rays, your host, functional nutritionist, food psychology specialist, and founder of Boulder Nutrition. I also lead women's wellness and yoga retreats, both locally and internationally. You can find out all about me and my work at bouldernutrition.com. My inspiration with Satiate is to offer you functional nutrition and well-being insights, to share with you case studies and stories that can act as salve for your soul, to introduce to you some of my favorite experts and special guests from all over the country, and to give you an opportunity to satiate your body, mind, heart, and soul. If you love this podcast, I would be so grateful if you head over to iTunes, subscribe so that you get updates on the latest episodes and leave a review. That way I can get the podcast out to those listeners who need it most. Onward with today's episode and special guest. I am so excited to introduce to you today my very own midwife, Jennifer Brown, joining me on Satiate. Shortly after I met her in 1996, Jennifer began to serve disadvantaged women and children in Afghanistan, Haiti, and now Uganda, training midwives world over since 2004. She is the Executive Director of International Midwife Assistance, or EMA, originally created by a group of women alarmed by the dismal state of maternal child health in Afghanistan. They began with a mission in which every woman would have access to a qualified attendant and life-saving resources throughout her pregnancy and birth. Once they completed their project in Afghanistan, which was an amazing feat, Ema's work expanded to Haiti and Uganda with the intention of bringing equal access and health care to women all over the world. This is an important episode with insider insights from Jennifer about the challenging state of Afghanistan and the women who live there. I hope you enjoy today's episode of Satiate. Thank you so much for being here with me today. It has been a long time since I've seen you and known you, and I feel like so grateful that we could share this conversation because it seems as though anything we can do to find out more information about what's going on in the world is a helpful conversation. So good to have you on the podcast, Jennifer. Thanks for having me. Thanks very much for being interested. Absolutely. So I thought just for context, it would be great to start with just a little bit about you and your story. When I was reading your bio recently, clearly there was a phase of like molecular, cellular, developmental biology, then midwife, and then Afghanistan and Ema. And I'd love to just kind of hear a little bit about sort of that timeline and how it all kind of came about. Well, I actually began studying to be a home birth midwife before I went to undergraduate school. I uh, initially attended home births with a physician in Northern Arkansas, and I had actually uh, met Ina Mae Gaskin and had a funny encounter with her when I was in high school in Nashville, Tennessee. Wow. But I began studying midwifery in Boulder in 1982. And I was a high school graduate. When I did finally go to CU Boulder, I was a little bit older than a lot of the other students. But before that, I uh, was uh, took part in a, in a home birth uh, apprenticeship in Boulder in the early 80s. It actually wasn't clear what direction midwifery was going to take. There was a, a school of belief that it should be uh, tacked on to nursing school as a master's degree. 
and a school of belief that that was uh, not a great idea and that midwives should be trained uh, separately, a different track. And while it may be that I agree with the latter, no real proper schools, and I'll be offending a bunch of people here, I think, ever were developed. <laughs> and uh, really what happened, in my opinion, was nurse midwifery became the correct and legitimate track. But this is way before that happened, like way before right, I remember that happened. That. <laughs> and uh, I had the privilege of apprenticing with a home birth midwife who had gone to a school in Texas and uh, attended a lot of births for a couple of years and had a baby myself and then had the idea that I wanted to go ahead and attend medical school. And I hadn't finished an undergraduate degree when I had left high school. And so I enrolled at CU Boulder. CU Boulder has a couple of prestigious departments and uh, it was the only university in town. And uh, I didn't want to be an astronaut or an engineer, but there is a molecular biology department in Boulder that is an outstanding, one of our nation's finest. And I got an undergraduate degree there in molecular biology, and it was fabulous. It was an amazing experience, a really good education. And um, during that time, I decided, actually, after... Uh, being hired on. I was older than a lot of the students. I was more in line in age with the graduate students. And uh, I had teaching experience from childbirth classes and I'm a bit of a natural teacher. And I got hired on as I finished my undergraduate training, uh, kind of along with the graduate students uh, as what was called an undergraduate instructor. And just had an amazing time there at the university in the molecular biology department. Just have a lot of warm feelings about mm. that. But during my time there, uh, particularly uh, why I brought that up was teaching a lot of pre-med undergraduates. I decided maybe that wasn't in fact what I wanted to do with my life. And, uh, Instead of doing that, I uh, went back to lobbying to change the restrictive laws around home birth midwifery. And at that time, I was able to do that because it was super weird. They would, you know, like threaten to arrest you and stuff if you said mm -hmm. home birth midwife. But I was working for CU, right, in a laboratory and teaching. And that uh, was a fun and entertaining stereotype buster, which probably isn't as funny in 2021, but in 1980, golly, nine, to be able to say into the microphone, but y'all can sit down. I'm currently on the faculty of CU Boulder in the Molecular Cellular Developmental Biology Department. They were <laughs> looking that up and making phone calls because there was no internet. And it turned out it was true. And that didn't really have anything to do. It wasn't remotely related to their stereotypes of what a midwife was. Right. So right. that was super helpful for me because at the time there was uh, legislation, there were statutes in place, uh, not legislation, but actual laws that forbid the practice of home birth midwifery. And the way that had been done in Colorado was unique. The only other place in the United States that it had been done was in Illinois by defining home birth midwifery as the practice of medicine or midwifery in general as the practice of medicine. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Only there's 48 states that don't do that. And so in order to make any kind of law to make home birth midwifery legal and regulated, you have to amend the Medical Practices Act, which in a city like Denver, where uh, organized medicine is very powerful, it was uh, quite a David and Goliath situation to deal with that law. So I left uh, my path to be a medical doctor and obstetrician and uh, was the citizen lobbyist on behalf of the Colorado Midwives Association, 
that got that law um, regulating home birth midwifery tidied up. And we got that passed in 1993. Governor Roy Romer signed that bill into law. And uh, so I started going to home births in 1982. And around 2002 and 2003, I was thinking that I wanted to do something differently for a lot of reasons. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I was thinking that I would go to veterinary medical school. And I was almost accepted to veterinary medical school. (laughs) (laughs) And all I had to do was take two classes in the summer and get a good grade, which sounded pretty casual to me. But I got this phone call after having a very weird experience. kind of like a supernatural experience at a birth and having the distinct impression that I was not going to veterinary medical school. And a client uh, from a while back had a friend who had just come back from Afghanistan and they wanted to send a midwife to Afghanistan. And I laughed and I said, I think you would probably need more than one midwife for Afghanistan, (laughs) but I will come to your meeting. And that is um, its own kind of long story that culminated in the birth of International Midwife Assistance. And we partnered to uh, establish the first accredited school for midwives in Afghanistan post-Taliban, post-Taliban one. Yeah. In Bamiyan, Afghanistan. And uh, that was fabulous. And we were going to do it again in a place called Faizabad, mm-hmm. in a province called Badakhshan, the other Shia province, the other most, uh, the poorest province in Afghanistan. Two poorest provinces in Afghanistan are Bamiyan and Badakhshan. Interesting and dubious honors, but so our first school was in Bamiyan, which most people have heard of because of the great big stone Buddhas the Talibs blew up. And then Badakhshan, really nobody's heard of. And uh, they had, at the time we started there in Afghanistan, Badakhshan was the location of the study that verified a maternal mortality rate of 1,600 per 100,000, because we look at the maternal mortality ratio in per 100,000, 1.6. I mean, can you imagine two women in 100 that you know who have given birth died doing that? But it was the highest rate at the time of maternal mortality ever recorded. And- Wow, uh, that's crazy high. We were going to do the next school there in the capital of Badakhshan called Faizabad. But the Taliban burned down our partner's office and said they would kill us if we came back. So we didn't do that. Wow. We started working uh, on a smaller project in partnership with the Colorado Haiti project and uh, talking to a lot of different groups about different situations where they were interested in partnering with us and ended up in Soroti, Uganda, which is where we are now. Um, I think that's the answer to your question. <laughs> definitely, definitely. I feel like I have like a thousand other questions that spiraled out of that. Well, let's do that. <laughs> well, it's interesting when you said that you hadn't been able to go back to Afghanistan because of this threat. And I'm just wondering if you could talk just a little bit more about that, because, you know, that's obviously daunting and scary and, and also probably accurate to the temperature of Afghanistan in general, in many ways, especially now. So let's just go into that for a minute and see, see what you have to share. Well, right now is August 26th of 2021, and we're getting reports that our military has sustained casualties because there are suicide bombers now near the airport. And I would say that it started 
it's begun what any sensible person who's been there or followed the story would tell you was going to happen now has begun the country has begun to devolve into civil war overlaid with this uh islamist dictatorship so that's really disturbing and depressing and sad and evil and it's hard to imagine what uh, one of us sitting here right now could really do about that. Yeah, it's a very tricky problem and certainly not one very likely for the US government to solve. It's just all a terrible, terrible cauldron of misery and what's happening right now is that the country is devolving because our military was holding off that eventuality. Yeah. So when you were there, how many years has it been since you've been to Afghanistan? I haven't been there since 2006, so it's been 15 years. Okay. So what was the sort of description you could tell us about how the birthing situation was there, how the women, women's health care was there, and how you would say that might compare to today with this new... In 2006. <laughs> in 2006, things were somewhat grim in most locations in Afghanistan, and there have been many cycles of grim since then, for sure. Uh, gosh. Uh, the Taliban had been in control from the 90s. Uh, golly, when did they take over? 96, I think, 95, maybe something like that. And uh, it was 2001 that the United States military sent them packing. Right. In 2006, there was a roadmap for change in women's health. And there were pockets of pilot and first programs that were doing quite well with women's health, but things were really still getting off the ground in 2006. Ours was the first accredited school and there had only been one other school up before ours in Jalalabad and that was the pilot program. Their second group of students was running concurrent to our first. Right, it was very early. And that was because of the Taliban, because uh, different from some other cultures and locations on the planet, there is a lack of uh, what we would experience as Americans of sense, common sense, I think is what we would call it in English. Mm -hmm. It's different, mm -hmm. the, the sense of uh, logic, it doesn't make sense to us that you would deny your mothers and your wives medical care, right? Right. And that right. your mortality rates would skyrocket and your babies would die. You would think, no, for heaven's sakes, no. If like, for example, Iran, an Islamic Republic has gender segregated medical services and therefore women and girls attend school and some of them become doctors <laughs> so that you know men many become nurses and midwives so that iranian women have access to health care right you'd think right and that's what's true in iran in afghanistan you'd think but you'd be wrong <laughs> there is this inclination to destroy i have a friend who started saying this when she had a toddler, that uh, there's this tendency to what my friend calls, knock it down. Mm. Taliban, and it is, it's like, well, I'm not gonna say that into the microphone, but it's an incredibly destructive force. Yes. With an inclination to destroy. And there is absolutely no inclination to sense up gender are segregated and mm -hmm. women and girls are expected to get services from women. Therefore, 
we would want to train midwives in doc oh absolutely not they just won't have doctors right there just won't be anyone properly trained right it's a really different ethos things don't look great for women's health in afghanistan today before a couple of weeks ago something i enjoyed saying a lot and it's just a a real perfect microcosm of the tragedy when we arrived in afghanistan in 2004 there was a recorded maternal mortality ratio in Badakhshan province of 1.6%. Four weeks ago, Afghanistan wasn't even in the top 10 countries. Because mostly because of midwifery education. And the school we established has graduated fully 2%. A little bit more than 2% of all the midwives in Afghanistan. And so before a few weeks ago, the impact was enormous and the trend was very promising, very promising because the Afghan government and the aid agencies had amidst a lot of nonsense and fraud, put educating female healthcare providers into a priority position. It was well-funded. It was being executed. It was happening. We were part of a big puzzle. We contributed, but there were much bigger players who were doing huge things and got a lot done. Today, things look quite bleak. Oh, yeah. It's hard to watch because it's so painful to visualize how bleak it can get and how bleak it can get. And that's, that's a tricky thing, Sue. I wouldn't recommend it. And part of sorting through my fear and grief has included talking mostly really only with people that were there with me or have worked there or from there. I don't think anyone should have to think about or hear about what the Taliban's been up to. Yeah, it gives us definitely nightmare, you know, nightmares during the day. <laughs> They're That's nightmarish, it's, and it's yeah. true, and it's much worse. And it's remarkable, the cycle has already started when they started misbehaving. The people there were saying, yes, this is happening and you could they were interviewed on television and one of them was saying oh no that's not happening and someone in my life actually suggested to me that oh no they said they weren't doing that thought the Taliban said they weren't doing that and so you feel better right wow meanwhile there's like an explosion at the airport last night so one knows right (laughs) you're like okay oh well never mind then I so it's just it's um you don't want to know you don't want to hear about we don't want to give oxygen to what those guys are doing right now yeah it's so scary terrorizing yes terrorists and the afghan people civilian non-combatants amazing brilliant lovely people really being victimized it's a mess it's a terrible mess so one thing i would love to hear about is you know, the work that you did there in midwifery training and in creating more of a safe environment for women to feel like they had allies during pregnancy, birth, postpartum, what were some of the most relevant issues that you addressed in those, in your school, in the training, in the towns you worked in? Well, there are a lot of layers to that very deep question. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, women had been kept indoors and illiterate for a long time. However, a lot of my students had their families had fled to Iran because uh, Badakhshan is the other and we were in Bamiyan, one of two Shia provinces in Afghanistan and in Bamiyan, people look different 
than most people in Afghanistan. In Afghanistan, there is a reality that people are highly identified by their ethnic identities. Mm -hmm. And there are some mm, hair and eye color matches and clothing that may indicate somebody's ethnic identity. And then of course there's language. But the Afghan people, given all their ethnicities, are what uh, biology would call Caucasian. Afghanistan is a Central Asian country. A lot of people fancy it part of Arabia and full of sand, but Afghanistan has the Himalayan mountains in it and a border with China. It's a Central Asian country, and uh, it's populated by people who in a DNA analyzer come up Caucasian. Okay. There is a route through Afghanistan called the Silk Road where Genghis Khan blew through town quite a while ago, although they are still angry about it. It's very interesting. Mm. Yeah. The culture um, is known for, you know, like in art and stuff, really holding a gr grudge about this. And uh, when Genghis Khan and his guys came through town, they intermarried or whatnot. And there are people in Bamiyan particularly that belong to a group called the Hezera. Mm. And those folks look different, are visibly different, not unlike being Asian, the way we would think about Asian in the United States of America or having African ancestry in the United States of America, right? It's very tricky to slip out into the crowd if right. you're a Hazara. Okay. And the Pashtu Taliban are looking for you. That oh, okay. is a, Got it. a tricky, tricky area uh, right now, a very hard place to be. Did I answer your question? I think not. A little bit. I, I think that the only piece that I'm curious about that you didn't answer was when you're there in you know the early 2000s creating support for women, what kind of support physically? Right. That was creating, one of the layers. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's one of the layers. Like what, what did they need? What was so I the climate? The most profound layer, uh, were two that first of all anyone that it had occurred to anyone outside of their community that they needed help and were there interested in helping them i think that was a really big deal and then actually the provision of services these women had not been out of the house sue they didn't they weren't allowed to leave the house to come to a clinic to get prenatal care or to a hospital or birth center to give birth super new in a country where life expectancy was in the early 40s and had been part of in conflict right what started the ball rolling in afghanistan which had been a super stable and modern country up until uh the king zayir shah was deposed by his uh what was that his brother or his nephew daoud right the daoud coup bloodless right in 1976 by 1979, the Soviets were taking advantage of that. You had the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan and the organization of the group called the Mujahideen. Then the United States sweeps in and heavily arms the Mujahideen to repel the Soviets. The Soviets leave. Then the country devolves into civil war. Then in 96, enroll the Taliban. We show up in 2001, right? 1976, I believe that's 26 years. And the Talibs have closed the schools for a long time, the 90s, and um, life expectancy is 42. And you've got this group of girls particularly that think about teaching them to read in private, read and write in private. And then you say this kid is eight years old and then somehow slips up 
because this is a child, then everyone dies, right? This is an illiterate generation, mm. cut off from the world, right? No yeah. electricity, no internet, no, none of that. The Talibs didn't allow music, right? None, none of that. This, this country is cut off from the world and women are not allowed out of the house. In some regions and in other regions, they're allowed out of the house, but only heavily draped and with an escort who's male. They don't yeah. say anything. They can't look at people. They can't. Women have no rights. You would rather be a goat. And then suddenly, part of what they were learning was, yeah, actually, you can go in there. There's these really nice midwives. They'll help you out. Doesn't cost anything. It was remarkable. I'm it was sure. a huge leap of faith by them to come into the hospital. Right feel that they have safety and support. And, and so we were it, anything, anything that you would imagine peeing in a cup for your analysis, having your baby palpated, right? By a provider who's thinking about how big it is and what position it's in, uh, having your blood pressure taken, having someone with you in labor. If you start bleeding too hard, does something to stop the bleeding. If the baby's not breathing, makes the baby breathe. Anything that you would imagine in the United States wasn't there. And then suddenly, so that was, that was a big change of support and what what was provided and the transition to what what happened next and that some of their daughters could go to school and become midwives and be uh, meaningful care providers in their communities hmm. so we were training midwives to go back to the rural areas right. many of them were going to be the only trained healthcare provider in their community at the basic health center and um that was terrific. Another big thing in answer to that question would be birth control, which was right. so poignant there. We had a very busy prenatal clinic and uh, I began studying Farsi a year before I went to Kabul the first time. And by the time I was working in Bamiyan, while I had a wonderful translator, I was quickly learning the language. And these uh, women would sidle up you know and they had brought in a sister or a daughter or whoever for prenatal care and she would say you know i really i want to ask you a question but i know it might be silly and i want to be embarrassed but i want to ask you a question and it, yeah after a little while you knew what the question was but you know you'd be patient and kind and she would tell you that she had heard that there were these pills that she had heard that there were women who were taking these pills and these pills made it so that you didn't get pregnant. What did I think about that? Had I heard that? Wow. And it would be just a, a remarkable privilege to say, have I heard of them? Can I take your blood pressure? Can you pee in a cup for me so we can make sure you're not pregnant? Darling, I have these pills. Mm. Wow. Amazing. So there's so many different spokes, like the prenatal care, the training of the mid midwives that you did within the there school. We were starting from scratch. There yeah. was nothing. There was yeah. nothing. Wow. The, the Aga Khan Development Network had done an amazing job putting up a hospital unbelievable a lot of it at that point was still dense when we started uh, rather than actual buildings but it mm -hmm. came along it wasn't always a tent there was there were buildings put where those tents were over time and uh they they did an incredible job wow. manifesting the hospital there that's incredible what an amazing project to be a part of and i'm sure not easy and painful in so many ways to see how much repression and suffering is going on, um, but amazing to be able to contribute in a positive way to it. Um, so when your project completed, tell me about what that looked like there, the Taliban, the threat. Well, at the time our project completed, it was 2006 and the school was off the ground and receiving a new class of students and the teachers that we had supported in training and took over and started training midwives and every 24 months a class of 22 graduated 
Wow. And over the years, they graduated a lot of midwives. That's such an amazing. became self-sufficient in regard to staffing. Awesome. And then the threat happened simultaneously around that time. And that's when you did well, it. Well, when we left, the Taliban was waning. That was 2006. It's 2021. We've had a lot of years free of the Talibs. And where I was in Bamiyan, none of them were hiding because the Hezra and the Taliban hate each other. Banakshan was the province we couldn't get into in 2006. And I don't think Badakhshan ever fell. I think the Taliban probably held Badakhshan the whole time. Mm, got it. Okay. Um, but Bamiyan, no. Bamiyan uh, was pretty much Taliban free for quite a long time. Amazing. So obviously your work has now grown and expanded into these other countries such as Haiti and Uganda. And one of the things that I was so inspired by when I was reading about the uh, international midwife assistance um, programs that you offer, I was really curious about like reading how some of these places need something and other places need another thing and how you've been able to really customize your work to really match what's going on politically and health-wise within the temperature of these countries. One of the stories that I was very touched by um, was I believe in Uganda where you were talking about the, um, this, the, the moped riders who you basically riled into your whole movement to help these women get transportation to hospitals or clinics during their labor. Can you speak to that a little bit? Because I They're think actually kind of, motorcycles. Is it motorcycles? Okay. Yeah. Because I was like, wow, like talk about customizing. I was really curious about these obstacles that women were having in various places around the world. And then how you guys not only are teaching about safe birth and prenatal care and all these things, but also problem solving some of these other more external problems that, you know, you were able to really work with. So I'd love to hear a bit more about that. Thank you. That is such a good question question uh, because <laughs> I think uh, unfortunately one of our strengths is something super unusual and I wish it were more usual and I hope over time to influence that uh, there are a lot of programs that uh, well you know I'm a, I'm a member of Rotary and we've just received a request from these uh, What's it called? Build a box homes. I should I shouldn't biff this. I will look for the answer to my question while we talk. Um, where you could drop down into um, shelter box. That's what they're called. These amazing kits where in a situation like what just happened in Haiti. You can hit the ground with this thing and mm. it really helps people. Mm -hmm. Gives them somewhere safe to for shelter, right? Okay. In maternal child health, it's really kind of nothing like that. There are things that are necessary for us to do our jobs properly, mm -hmm. items, but it's mostly human capital, right? It's trained professionals, or, or we would say skilled birth attendants is the language mm -hmm. okay. that, that is consistent with the data because there are mountains of evidence about this. How you drive down maternal and infant mortality is you make sure that there are skilled birth attendants available to women when they're pregnant and in labor and during the postpartum period. Right. And that's an inclusive word because worldwide, internationally, in countries with the best indicators, like uh, many of Scandinavian or Northern European countries, Japan, mm -hmm. very low rates of maternal and infant mortality, right? What do they yeah. all have in common, right? They all have midwives, right? And, and the data shows very clearly that what drives down maternal and infant mortality is skilled midwives. But there are also places and in situations where the answer is physicians. Well, okay, great. That too, right? So we have skilled birth attendants, but what we know is trained professionals 
available to pregnant women when they're pregnant for prenatal care, particularly when they're giving birth and during the postpartum period, really that's what reduces mortality. There is a list of things they need <laughs> and right. there is a list of things they need to do with those things that they need to know how to do skilled, right? Super mm -hmm. important word skilled. But so yes. here's why I pulled out the shelter box analogy earlier. Okay. <laughs> because there are many programs and some of them actually brilliant and they're educational. And we drop in to a community and we say, Hey, you guys, you have high rates of maternal or infant mortality. Part of the reason is that you don't know how to deal with this or you don't have the resources or whatever. Mm -hmm. Here's how you do it. Here's some stuff. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, and I don't mean to be glib and that was icky in its presentation in a way uh, if it weren't true. And so what that is, when you drop in and you say, hey, you guys have a terrible problem. Here's how you solve it. Do this. And here's some stuff. Really, isn't that colonialism? Hmm. I just drop by to tell you that you're wrong and how to right. be different. I can't talk myself out of believing that that's a really sort of deep, basic expression of colonialism. So wrapping back to what you said, I've always felt it was really important to be in a place where there was a community that wanted us there. Yeah. That we shared some fundamental values with around compassion and dignity and kindness, human dignity and behavior, which is of course also fundamental to midwifery. Right. And then had an interaction with the community for sure, not forsaking like a good needs assessment or data saying, so what do you guys need? What do you want to do about this? What happened? What, what, how are we going to fix that? Right. Cause I've got a lot of resources and I'm good at implementing these solutions, but I'm going to need to hear from you guys what it is you think we're doing. Cause I don't think I can just drop by, have a look around and decide how to solve these problems. Right. I understand some overriding principles and I'm super well-educated. However, it has been important to make projects where we are being specific in the needs of the community, right? right? Also, because we're very small, right? If Doctors Without Borders is there, for heaven's sakes, there's no reason for EMA to be there. Got we it. are well positioned to go into a situation where there's enormous need, solve big problems, but for some reason there aren't other big, there's the big actors aren't there, right? That's a really sweet spot for us. We can get a lot done, but we're small. And so in that situation, then we tailor what we do to figure out with the local community, how are we going to do what our mission is, which is to drive down maternal and infant mortality. Fundamentally, I know you do that by deploying midwives, but in some places they have to be trained. In some places they're not ready to be trained. You have to lay that groundwork. In some places they're already trained, right? And so the, the, the project that's going to do the best work by the community is going to involve knowledgeable members of the community who yeah. are fundamental to designing the project to meet the community's needs. And we empower them and resource them and yeah. work with them, mentor them and provide continuing education for them. The Tesso Safe Motherhood Project is staffed by 44 Ugandan professionals. Volunteers from EMA still rotate through there before COVID and a little bit during and after, you know, we, we, we spend a lot of energy there. Certainly continuing education is a really important thing, but there isn't anyone there from my organization right now during COVID. Right. And it's, they're doing great. The community midwifery training program community midwife, excuse me, training program in Bamiyan, Afghanistan, 
up until a few weeks ago, was being run by Afghan midwives who we trained. And they don't need anything from us. We've been in touch, particularly lately, but uh, they it's their place. It's not my place. Yeah, got it. And within that little snippet of solving this external problem of getting these um, Ugandan women to the clinic. Oh, right. The Vajaz program. I know, but it was so cool that this program came out of your work and yet it's not really, it's like in your field, but not really in your field. It's like a whole different problem. Well, I started wandering around during a prenatal day that was really busy and saying to women, so everyone comes for prenatal care. And, you know, Sue, this is an unusual in development, right? That you can establish a clinic, but very few people will come for services, like for delivery. How do you get people to come in to deliver and not stay in the village? And I said to them, what's what's that about? Why don't you guys come to have your babies here? We were doing, I don't know, 40 births a month or something like that. And they said, for the most part, three things. Some of them said, I'm going to have my baby here. (laughs) Some of them said, this is my first baby, or this is my sixth baby, or my eighth baby, or my 14th baby. And so there's a rule that it has to be the hospital and the birth center. Or the vast majority of them said, if I go into labor at night, how am I going to get here? How am I supposed to get here in labor? I can get here for a prenatal, but in labor, how the heck am I supposed to get here? I live in a remote village, sister. <laughs> right. So I said to the people at the Tesla Save Motherhood Project, what are we going to do about that? We can go to the health ministry, the district office, and ask for permission to do first-time moms and moms having their sixth or more baby. And that was actually, it took a little while, but that was no sweat. And some of them are coming to deliver, but this big group says they can't get here. What are we gonna do about that? And one of our staff members, actually a driver in the clinic pastor said, you know, I'm very well networked in the communities, the rural communities, the villages. And any man who lives out there who has a motorcycle, which we call a bajaj, sort of in the way that here we might call a tissue Kleenex or yep. a plaster bandage, a Band-Aid. Yep. We say bajaj. Anyone who has a bajaj, any man, you know, sister, I'm called sister in Uganda. He's sober. He's been working hard. He probably began breaking rocks and sold gravel to have enough money to get a bicycle, to be a boat driver. And then he made enough money and he saved it to buy a bajaj. These are entrepreneurial men. Yeah. And so Richard asked for permission, basically in resources, to go to the village elders in each village and talk about this idea. And then they got the bajaj drivers together and networked and got the women's permission for the driver in her community to know about her due date, know about her pregnancy. And then, you know, when they would bring them in labor and postpartum, the midwives at the clinic pay them. And it trickles down into communities, of course, right? His income is going up, up, up. Right. And uh, it's tied in this whole other group of people into the clinic and into keeping the women in the village well, because of course there's lots of different programs that focus on organizing the community to be able to take a pregnant woman who's having a bad emergency in, even if they're not usually able to access transport and how to do that. And there's a belief that while maybe we won't be able to provide this forever, but I believe we'll carry it into a bigger facility where, yeah, we have ambulances and stuff. Honest to God, we'll come get you in labor. right? Um, But if we didn't, and in other situations, over time, you are normalizing having transport to the health facility and labor right? and suggesting to the community, like, how would we do this? How would we save money? How would we support this family to take us to the health center and labor? That that becomes a normal behavior only through doing and time. It's amazing. I love how specific and 
problem solving focused your work is within these communities that just need such varying things in various countries and various provinces and various locations around the world. And I know that I received a uh, newsletter from you just a few days ago, ironically, which was funny because we had just gone back and forth um, individually and it was about you going back to Uganda soon. And yeah, tell me about that back after the pandemic. Oh, I'm so excited. I hope. I don't know what the odds are. I may end up with an E credit on Delta Airlines, but right now (laughs) I am booked to leave the United States on the 14th of September, which will get me to Sarodi that Friday, 17th, I believe is what that is. Going back the other way over the dateline, I'll leave theoretically on the 1st of October and get home on the 2nd. And so I will have a short stay there, only two weeks, but it feels like a lot more than nothing. And they are having, they've been through a terrible Delta surge there and they're seeing it falling off precipitously. They don't want the staff, they don't want volunteers from the United States there while they feel that we're in danger and they see a window opening. And if it stays open, I'm gonna go to Uganda for a couple of weeks and um, meet with a bunch of people and do some stuff. And um, while they manage things very well themselves, there are a couple of things, one in particular, supply-wise, that they can't get there. And right. that's a drug called mesoprostol. Supposedly they can, but it's not really mesoprostol. And that stops the hemorrhage like nobody's business. And that's a real problem. And while not so in the United States, it is the number one cause of maternal mortality worldwide. And uh, wow. that's the one thing they just really, ooh, it, they got to have it. And so I will have the opportunity to bring them a bunch of that. That's great. Wow. Well, let's turn the conversation a little bit to like what people can do, resources, donations, anything that you think. I know that there's a lot of people in my world and in my community that are feeling helpless with the situation in Afghanistan, of course, but also in a sense, the global women's health crisis in general, that clearly is such a huge project and passion of yours. Is there anything we can send people or any links that have good information or places to send donations or supplies or anything like that? Afghanistan is a sticky wicket right now. Uh, There are organizations that are supporting Afghans within Afghanistan, but honestly, that's, um, I don't know. I think that's a tenuous situation and I don't feel confident saying much about how to move forward right now yeah i think on the 26th of august we're just we don't know honestly not to be dodgy no i think things are going to unfold a lot in the next couple of weeks too yeah i am i of course have a (laughs) interest in what we're doing in east africa what's going on in in sarodi's kind of amazing because um they've achieved so much there they are really ready to take another step as an organization there on the ground. The Tasso Safe Motherhood Project does before COVID, uh, and and now this year we'll be back to uh, no fewer than um, 60,000 patient visit a a year and something between 100 and 150 births a month and um, at least 6,000, family planning patients a year. And they, they just, they serve an amazing need within a desperately impoverished population who've been virtually forgotten, the victims of the Lord's Resistance Army. And they do all of that free of charge. They provide amazing high quality services. And in a region that's very high risk, that still has terrible maternal mortality numbers, even since the Millennium Development Goals weren't reached in Uganda, um, still maintain a maternal mortality rate of zero. They, they do an incredible job. And uh, as things are getting better, we're hopeful for next spring that we'll continue, continue to again send a steady string of volunteers, uh, so midwives, 
nurses who do labor and delivery, obstetricians as well. People who do business administration, particularly accountants, mm. um, are wonderful volunteers and very exciting. And what will segue, I suppose, into the donations and go ahead and just be in touch with me part. And our website is midwifeassist.org. Okay. I believe there's an info at midwifeassist.org. So that, what would that be? M-I-D-W-I-F-E-A-S-S-I-S-T dot org. And the info at goes to me. We acquired the Tessa Safe Motherhood Project. They in Uganda, the NGO there, acquired some land in a very good place to establish a permanent home because what we need to do there is be able to do cesarean sections at our facility. Yeah, that's another piece I was thinking about will be because now we have this land it's paid for and utilities are pulled and it's graded and surveyed and all the permissions are in place we want to build a, a replacement facility for where we're renting now move there and then do another campaign to build a surgical facility in a NICU right a neonatal intensive care unit which we don't Perfect. have yeah and not a proper one there may be they there's one in in Kampala they say is but I've been there, not really, and also nothing up north. So we want to nick you as well. Okay. We just received the initial gift to begin the first phase of building, just like, I don't know, four days ago, something like that. Just, wow. Just, just received. And Congratulations. So we'll a campaign. Thank you to do that building to move them to a permanent facility to replace the one that we're renting now. So that's super exciting. So not only, of course, will there be that capital campaign, but I um, will be very, very happy to talk with and interested in talking with people who have um, engineering backgrounds. I want to green that building. I want to make sure we've got something very like a strong solar array and cisterns to deal with water issues when things get ugly with regard to power and water, which isn't that reliable in Northern Uganda. So there are a lot of different kinds of people who might be interested in volunteering. And uh, they might wanna get our newsletter. We send e-newsletters four times a year. Um, yeah, if any, if any of this touches your heart in some way interests you because what I do have to offer people who are just touched and interested and want to send a donation or are interested in maybe following us and maybe giving a donation is that uh, we are an organization where you can really keep track of what we're doing with your money. That's amazing. So we've got your nonprofit, the International Midwife Assistance, and then we've also got the Tesso Safe Motherhood Project, which is the Ugandan project. Just to That's the Ugandan NGO. Right, that's okay. their incorporation in Uganda. We they do business as the Tesso Safe Motherhood Project. We are their principal funder. We do all that fundraising here. Amazing. Okay, well, I will definitely link those in the show notes so that people have an easy click. Yeah, just to the website. That would be great. Yeah. Well, it's so great to spend this time talking with you and to learn about more about what you've been up to since back in the day when <laughs> I was. Your going children my... are babies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. That feels like so long ago. I um, remember. <laughs> I oh. remember too. Yeah, absolutely. Especially that last one that you barely made it to. <laughs> <laughs> that was a fast one. Um, so yes, thank you so much for making this happen so quickly this week. I feel like it is just a really good timing to just share with people, you know, sort of the reality and the resources and all of these. Well, thanks for having me. I wish I had something hopeful to say about Afghanistan. I know. I wasn't really expecting it to be that hopeful, yeah. but I do appreciate your insight and, you know, just the amount of service that you've given to so many countries and so many women who have needed it. It's just such an amazing and that's such an amazing thing that you do. So well, thank, thank you. you. Thanks for thinking of me. Thank you so much for joining me today on this special episode of Satiate. 
I want to send you off with wholehearted wishes for your health and happiness and that we meet here again very soon. Thanks for listening.